Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Edward Said's notion of Orientalism. And if you're new to the channel, if you're new to this as a podcast, then you probably don't know that sometimes for certain swaths of time, I like to cover an additional idea or concept in addition to the weekly episodes I do every Saturday covering a text. Now, this will normally happen midweek, and I normally do it to coincide with North American academic semesters, because that's when there's the most engagement. So that's just to explain why I'm doing this episode here. And this happens to belong to the category of episodes I do titled Keywords, where I just explain a single term in just a few minutes to give you an idea of what's going on here. Now, before jumping into it, if you are new, hi, I'm David. I like to explain philosophical concepts and ideas to you so you can hopefully learn more on your philosophical journey. If you're new here, you can find this you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. If you found this in podcast form, you can find the video on YouTube. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. Links in the description if you're interested. You can follow me on Instagram at theory and underscore and at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Again, links, titles in the description. So yeah, don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let me present this thing called Orientalism. Now I've covered this text in its entirety and you can find that on this podcast or YouTube channel if you want the full experience here. But today I'm just gonna briefly outline what Orientalism means for Edward Said and its implications for the world. Now to put it as simply as possible, the Orient is a constructed opposite or antithesis to the West, which is also called the Occident, that is imbued with qualities that are seen as unsavory, and in a lot of cases opposite to Western values. So where is the Orient? Perhaps if you just hear the term, you might think the Far East. You might think China, Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, any any country in that region. But the Orient is an idea that is associated not with a specific region or specific regions. Rather, the Orient is a combination of different characteristics and attributes, the unsavory ones that I will outline, those that are seen as being anathema to Western values, being opposite to Western values. It is an amalgamation of these unsavory characteristics placed together and applied in order to understand any group of people in a place that doesn't belong to, uh, doesn't exist in the West, and against cultures that do not readily subscribe to so-called Western values. Now, even if cultures do subscribe to them, they might still fall into this domain called the Orient, into the Orient or the East, simply because of the benefits that are afforded to Western interests in the construction of the Orient and the maintenance of the idea of the Orient as being inferior, being lesser than the West, be it political inferiority, economic inferiority, religious inferiority, and so on. Now in his book titled Orientalism, Said is mostly interested in what he calls the Near Orient, which is referring to the Middle East or the Arabic world and you know it is a little bit slippery even in his book he does consider Pakistan India um, 
other places that aren't Muslim, well, Pakistan would be, but other places that aren't Muslim, and to consider just Arabic-speaking countries. And there's no possible way to really lay down and to establish exactly what the Orient means and the Near Orient means for him. And I have other issues with this. If you're interested in any critiques I might have, go check out those episodes that I've done on the on the, the entire text. But for now, the point that I think is important to really understand is that it isn't a specifically laid out geographic space. So the Orient historically has also been associated with Eastern Europe, including countries like Romania, Bulgaria, that have been often described as being dark, gloomy, exotic places where there's a lot of depravity and, and so on. Now, Orientalism is itself the study of the Orient. And it extends beyond just the academic study of the Orient to people going to the Orient just to better understand it, to political bodies trying to understand the Orient in order to manage and to prepare for military expeditions, colonial expeditions there. It is also a field of study that is taken on by certain corporate interests that try to better understand these areas so that they can be exploited for whatever resources they might offer. In as we'll come to see in the 20th century, oil. Oil being a very big one, and in the, into the 21st century as well. So some of the, the qualities that the Orient is imbued with is the idea of people there being somehow less advanced than people in the West. People there being more conniving or more prone to conspiracy. People there being irrational, not able to actually string thoughts and ideas together. Now, of course, all of this is absurd, and it's not true, and it doesn't actually point to any real orient, but Said stresses that in the face of these stereotypes, these negatives, I guess all stereotypes are negative, in the face of these stereotypes, it's important not to react by saying that that's not the real orient, because for him, the orient doesn't exist. It is an umbrella term used to degrade a number of different nations and cultures for Western interests. So someone in Pakistan is going to be different from somebody in Iran. Like they're totally different cultures. And Afghanistan, Iraq, like these are very different places. And it's wrong to just assume that there is this real Orient and just imbuing the Orient with so-called positive qualities. All that will do is mirror the same cycle of oppression. That is in constructing an identity for people instead of letting people live their lives and speak for themselves. So the point is that in the face of negative stereotypes, it would be wrong to just posit these positive qualities because all that does is it confirm the idea that all of these people and all of these very disparate nations and cultures are all just the same. Now it's important to acknowledge too that Orientalism takes on many different forms. So British Orientalism was different than French Orientalism for example, because the British's experience to the Near Orient, that is the Middle East, was one uh, was viewed as being kind of like a passageway to their own real economic interest, being India. Whereas with France, because they didn't have a place like India, you know, they would get Vietnam eventually and other southern uh, Asian states. Because France didn't have that, their experience of the Orient was a little different as being something valuable in itself, as being a thing to study and, and really grapple with in itself. 
And for some people in France, it was a way by which to come closer to nature because these people, these cultures were seen as being less advanced than European culture. So it was then seen, or these cultures were seen as being, the Orient was seen as being a way by getting closer to nature, was a way to get closer to God. Whereas for the British, it was just a way to get to their economic imperial land of India or Pakistan. So Orientalism goes through or underwent three broad phases within Europe and North America. And these very broad phases go as follows. There's religious Orientalism, there's scientific or secular Orientalism, and then the third is Anglo-American social science globalized Orientalism, which is different from scientific or secular Orientalism, and I'll, I'll explain why. But to start with number one, religious Orientalism was largely inspired by the idea that Christianity had to be the world's religion. So anything that was not Christianity was going to be derided. It was, go it was going to be challenged, and it was going to be uh, people within Europe were going to try to remove it from the face of the earth. So colonial expeditions were conducted with the hope of spreading Christianity all across the globe and imbuing Muslim culture, Muslim religion with negative qualities in order to make sure that it wouldn't spread beyond where it already existed. Now, of course, this failed and uh, the Islamic faith grew much after these colonial expeditions. Now, that's just one way that religious orientalism manifested itself. There's more to it, and you can check out those episodes if you want more. But that mutated eventually into a secular orientalism. And this was taken on by philologists, by scientists, by empiricists, who thought that it wasn't just about understanding the Orient through scripture, or trying to just impose an idea of the Orient in accordance with God's will. Instead, these people began to apply their uh, a burgeoning and emerging scientific knowledge to understand the Orient and its people. And this happened to also coincide with various constructions of race, where people with more brown skin compared to white-skinned Europeans, at least uh, as they were constructed, were going to be seen as being inferior because of their biological makeup, their physiology, which was justified through scientific discourse through scientific study and so on. So that was the period of secular Orientalism. And it was largely used to uh, justify colonial expeditions there, political ones, various corporate developments there, and so on. Now this gave way to Anglo-American social science -y Orientalism that sought to not go to these places and to study these people but rather to just apply a specific understanding of the Orient and then use that to understand these people. So there was even less engagement than there was under the second phase of secular Orientalism. And this is one that was largely found within the United States. And so various constructions of the Orient began to just replicate themselves. And this was partly helped by a massive culture industry that spread negative images of Arabic people all across the United States and the rest of Europe very quickly, and that could then influence the way that people would understand the 
quote-unquote Orient and Arabic people and contribute to a massive fear of these people and a desire to better control and manage what the Orient was going to be capable of. And so you would, we saw military regimes start to emerge or uh, military operations start to emerge to just try to control the Orient. You know, Western nations being suspiciously eager to jump overseas, at least from North America, to, to, to insert themselves in any conflict in the so-called Orient, the Middle East. And this is also at a time when globalized capitalism has reached such a point as to leave little opportunity for any alternative. And so at the same time, there is a desire, kind of percolating desire among the so-called West to make sure that it can drum up support for its globalized movements by constructing enemies. And these enemies couldn't assume the same historical form of being associated or tied specifically to nations where France could use Egypt as a it's just one example, as a necessary antithesis and assume all the values of Egypt to be opposite to France. Now there had to be something that was constructed in such a way as to be seen as being opposite to democratic global Western values, which are, I think that democracy is good, but in any case, these values were assumed to not be embraced by countries or people within the Orient. So this encouraged a further demonization of these people and these cultures to such a point as to just classify them as being terrorists, as being opposed to these values, just without any real justification or rationale, just being mindlessly opposed to such ways of living in the world. And yeah, these are the different forms that Orientalism could take. There's more to it. Go check out those episodes if you want more. I hope that this was helpful. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I really should have included, you know, leave a comment. I can pin it. People can see. Tell me that I'm wrong and then I'll pin the comment and people will see and they will laugh at me and that will be fun. You can leave a review on a podcast platform, leave five stars. That'd be great. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.